My family used to vacation every summer to Chincoteague, Virginia. If you've ever been there before, you know that it's kind of a rugged, I, I haven't been there in 40 years, but I imagine it's changed. But um, we camped, but to go to the beach, to go to the ocean, you had, there was no ocean front in Chincoteague. You got to drive around Assateague Bay to the National Park, which is Assateague Island. And it was gorgeous because there's not a home on it. It's just beautiful sand dunes and ocean. It's amazing. And nobody's there. I mean, we went there in September. And we were the only people and it was my beach, you know, <laughs> it was great. You know, and, and it was a beautiful place to go. And one particular summer, we went there right after a tropical storm. So the waves were like Hawaii to this eight-year-old kid, you know. And I had a styrofoam surfboard. You guys remember those? Yeah, so I got the styrofoam, old Bessie. She, she was great. And so I could ride the waves in, and it was phenomenal. But my dad warned me, you know, son, after such a storm, especially because Shikati kind of jutted out from the rest of the coast, it's kind of like uh, the Outer Banks in North Carolina. The undertow's strong. And so he warned me about the undertow, told me what to do if I got caught in it. And he said, don't be stupid and get caught in it. You know, just be aware. You know, so every time you come in, walk back and regage yourself where mom and I and our beach umbrella is. Well, like every eight-year-old boy did listening to his wise dad, I ignored him. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm being Hawaii 5.0 surfer on my board, right? And I'm having a great time, and all of a sudden, just I don't know how much time passed, instead of being 20 feet out from the shore, I now find myself, what my dad said was a mile down the shore, 100 feet out. So I see my dad yelling at my name and waving his hands. There are no lifeguards at Assateague. Nobody's coming for me. And my dad's just waving his arms. And I looked up and I said, oh, there's an undertow. And it's, take, it's starting to take me out into the Atlantic, across the pond. And so I, I did what my dad told me to. I swam parallel to the shore and I got back in. And he looked at me like only Wes Sherman could look at you and say, boy, I told you. The, the ocean may look gentle enough, but underneath is an undertow that will carry you away, and you're not coming back if you're not careful. Being All Saints Sunday, what we do is we look traditionally at an early church figure, someone who stood faithful in his or her time so that we can learn how to stand in our time for the reality and the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to take you back on a story to 180 A.D. We're standing overlooking a crest of a hill, overlooking the Roman city of Lyon in southern France. The, the city of Lyon straddles the Rhone River. Is it the Rhine or the Rhone, John? Rhone. Rhone. Thank you, sir. John speaks French fluently, so I can, I can look to him in all things French. As you look down this hill, you can see the overloaded barges uploading the brown burlap sacks of grain onto the wharfs that are thrust out into the Rhone. Skiffs with white sails are carrying merchants and Roman officials back and forth across the stream. You can see tiny distant figures in white togas. 
stepping from their boats onto the docks while others stand about in groups of three and four. All these Roman government officials are there in Rome. Because Lyon is a Roman provincial capital. Northward and southward along the rivers and east and west through the hills, the straight-as-an-arrow Roman roads carry swift post riders with satchels of dispatches of government business and creaking ox wagons filled with sacks of grain and produce and jars of wine for the region. By the size of the city of Lyon below you, you can tell that it's the provincial capital. You can see the white stucco houses with red tile roofs and the great open forum in the center of the city. On the right bank with its many column porticos are the various government buildings that are there for the Roman government. And here and there throughout the city with these red tile roofs interrupted by open marketplaces that are filled with yellow, gray, brown awnings with merchants of all kinds of wares. And like Rome, Lyon is a crazy mix of races, languages, and religions. Lyon is the city of Rome in miniature. The religious scene is dominated by the official state cult with its official priesthood of the temples of Jupiter and Juno in the forum. And there the priests burn incense to the guiding spirit of the emperor, emperor Commodus. You recognize that name? Anybody ever see the movie Gladiator? Played by Joaquin Phoenix? Totally inaccurate. <laughs> there was no such person as Maximus Decidus Meridius. No such Roman general. Commodus wasn't a, a great emperor, but he wasn't Joaquin Phoenix bad. Okay? And actually, the gladiator games were 99% of the time mano-a-mano events with referees, if you can believe it. You know? One-on-one -on -one combat, and they gambled, but it wasn't the typical gladiator games as you would have seen them in that movie. A few were, but not many. But Commodus is the emperor at this time, and on every street there's also smaller temples honoring a variety of eastern gods and goddesses. There's the god Attis, whose priests gassed themselves with knives, and the temple of Mithras, the stern and demanding hero god of the Roman soldiers, who are all barracked here in Lyon. Finally, there are scores of front store shrines of lesser gods and booths with astrologers, fortune tellers, palm readers, and witch doctors on every block. Underneath this, you can hear and smell all the holy buildings, and one message in Lyon is crystal clear to you good citizens of Lyon. They all agree that the universe is a cosmic abortion. It's a hostile environment. It's an accident that needs to be getting rid of, and the stars are out to get you. The earth is a cosmic cesspool of disgusting matter, and the only solution is to escape. And all these storefront gurus will offer to whisper to in your ear secret passwords, which will unlock the crystalline spheres that are surrounding the earth unseen. And maybe when you die, you'll be able to get to whatever heaven might be.
And in the meantime, according to some, the religious teachers, since your body is made up of this disgusting matter, you ought to repress your appetites harshly. But there's other gurus who teach you that since your spirit is going to let eventually leave this disgusting body of yours behind, you can eat whatever you want. And you can have sex with whoever or whatever you want. Because, you know what? Doesn't matter. The religious underworld Lyon can run you into trouble in a lot of different ways, but through an archway. Off on a side street, we enter a very different world. We come into an interior garden with a cloister on three sides. There's a fountain in the midst of the garden, and goldfish swim in the clear waters of the pool around this beautiful, peaceful fountain. Off to the left of the courtyard, through an open doorway, we see a high-ceiling room where men and shocking women are there, listening to a grave, white-bearded, old man sitting on a platform in a stout armchair. And behind him on the wall, we notice certain symbols. There's a fish. There's a shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders. There's an anchor. And he's speaking in a clear, measured voice. As we listen, it dawns on us that this man is a Christian teacher. And here in the security of a private home, he's instructing the leaders and their wives in a radically different worldview from the one you're picking up in the marketplace. He's a shepherd feeding his flock, and he's helping these leaders, both male and female, to know and affirm the vision of reality, which is unique in Lyon, as well as the rest of the Roman Empire. And this man's name is Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon. He was in this community from 178 to the year 202. Why is it so important for him to labor so hard? Teasing, persuading, instructing, teaching these weavers and shopkeepers, basket makers, every kind of trade to be faithful. Why did this Christian worldview require such diligent reinforcement? If you had heard the good news about Jesus Christ and Leon, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you think the population would just run to it? Well, dear friends, you need to remember, however, what it was like to live among your neighbors and friends and perhaps all the people in your apartment block who saw this universe through completely different eyeglasses. Everyone in the neighborhood would have accepted the commonplace view that the matter was evil and spirit is good and that this universe is hopelessly corrupt and bleak. They would have told you as a matter of course that your only hope for bliss is to lay that slim chance that your immortal soul might fly up to heaven through the crystalline spheres because of some little local savior God who snuck you by the bad gods. And maybe these gods would toss you some spiritual crumbs for good luck. See, that's what they were hoping for. But what was different now in 180 than 100 years ago in 80 was there's a new teaching coming in that said in the church, in the church, there were some teachers that were teaching that Jesus 
just because we all know that matter is bad and spirit is good, Gnostic teachers, such as Marcion, were in the church teaching that the Old Testament and its law is thrown out. Don't listen to it. As a matter of fact, the only gospel with his words reading is parts of Luke that have no law in them, and Paul's teaching. He taught that Jesus was never really fully God in the flesh. Because, of course, we know this thing is, is absolutely awful. Therefore, Jesus appeared from 30 to 33 A.D., did his thing, and left. Because spirit is good. And so, in many churches around the empire, as well as in the marketplace, you felt like an alien. Rubbing shoulders with your neighbors and relatives who saw reality very different than you. Everyone looked so different from you and thought different from you. You dared to believe in a God who created you good. And he called the universe good. You trusted in Jesus Christ, the Savior God, who had come into this world not by a bribe, not because someone purchased him, because he came out of a simply love for the human race. And you placed your hope in this new covenant for the universe, this new agreement in which matter will be cleansed and liberated and one day restored. It wasn't so hard to affirm these things when you were together in the church at Marcus's house. But as soon as you left, you said your goodbyes to your brothers and sisters, your stomach would get queasy as you're walking down the street. Your scalp would get a little prickly because you would ask yourself why that tough-skinned sandal maker, every time you walked by, would put his hammer down and glare at you. You thought, is he going to turn me into the prefect? And if the prefect sent the guards and hauled me in, were you prepared to give your life for the faith which you professed? Or were you just crazy to go on taking risks for a God who might not even exist? See, it was not easy going in 180 Lyon, France. It was not easy if you lived in Rome or Antioch or Ephesus or Alexandria either. If anything, it would have been harder to cling to the Christian faith than it was a hundred years earlier. The Bible had not yet been canonized, and by that I mean it hadn't been compiled officially. The word canon means measuring stick. What was the word of God was the, was the answer. And Marcion, the heretic, was the first one who tried to put one together, if you can believe it. Thus the conversation began. And the person who really began it was Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon. He was born in Western Asia Minor, raised as a Christian, and emigrated to Rome and then to Lyon, because Lyon was a place for great opportunity. And so he's in the church there, and he became a pastor of one of the churches in Lyon, and all the churches gathered together, and they needed to deal with this problem of heretical teaching from Marcion. So they sent him to Rome to gather all the church leaders together to an official, an official, make an official statement of how they were going to deal with this Gnostic heresy. And he represented them in 177, 188, and while he was there, there was an attack on the church. 
and 90% of Christians were killed by this massacre, including the bishop, Pothinus. Pothinus. So upon Irenaeus' return, he found that the few survivors had elected him bishop. Congratulations, Irenaeus. You're our bishop. And you know what? He took that call seriously and faithfully, and for the rest of his life, he labored to disciple the people so that they, in turn, would disciple others in Lyon. And you know what happened? He sparked revival in Lyon, France. It started to spread like crazy to keep the faithful out of the undertow that was going on in their culture. He urged his churches in Lyon to embrace what we now call the New Testament. Basically saying, look, we've always looked at this as inspired scripture. Let's start this conversation. What is the word of God? So when you open up to the New Testament, that's what he was dealing with. And he composed a rule of faith. You know, if you couldn't read, <laughs> you couldn't write, which most of the population couldn't, how can we disciple the good sandal makers and wood carvers and everybody else? Well, he decided to come up with a rule of faith. And what's a statement that people could know what they believe and why, and they used it as a way to teach new believers, but they also used it for evangelism. It went like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified and died under Pontius Pilate. Crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's the Apostles' Creed. And he developed that with the other pastors in the community so that the church would know what to believe. This is Christian doctrine, and this is the Word of God. And so the conversation began. And he began the belief of what we now call apostolic succession. Look back through the faithful teaching, through the bishops that are faithful, all the way back to the apostles. That's all we need to do, friends, we don't look outside of that. And so for more than 20 years, Irenaeus then taught and discipled these good people, instructed them, and kept the community intact against the eroding pagan worldview. But then in 202 AD, the city rose up and once again attacked the church and massacred most of them, including the bishop Irenaeus. But thanks to him and his pattern of disciples who make other disciples, the church survived the onslaught and thrived and spread throughout that region of the Roman Empire because it was more confident in God's word and taught much better than it had 50 years prior. What about us today? Is the world really that different from Lyon? Thank God we haven't been massacred for what we believe. But the reality is, if you put us in 180, would we be faithful as they were? I pray that day doesn't come here. But at the same time, 
What a great community. What great leadership. What faithful leadership. Because their culture was just as individualistic as ours is. You know? And there's four narratives which are going across our culture today, which are very similar to Lyon in 180. You have the identity narrative, which says you got to be true to yourself. Believe what you want to believe. There's the freedom narrative. I should be free to live any way I want as long as I'm not harming anybody else. There's the happiness narrative. Whatever makes you happy, honey, do it. There's the morality narrative, which argues that no one has the right to tell anyone what is right for him or her. Now, if you're a, a Christian and a disciple of the living God, you know that every single one of these narratives that our culture now believes, and if you don't think it's being said, go talk to a teenager or a college student. That's exactly what's being reinforced right now. And you also know that these are deeply contrary to the idea of Christian discipleship. You know that we, as Christians, must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Because that is where the abundant life is found. Because all those narratives are an absolute lie. And so, dear friends, we can look to God's word this morning on All Saints Sunday. We can look to Jesus' words and say, notice he, he looked at the crowds and opened his mouth and he said, the first words are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. In the Old Testament, to be blessed of God in this way meant in the ancient Hebrew, favored and envied. We talk about the blessing of King David, the blessing of Joshua, the blessing of Moses. Those were people, you know what, they're pretty good dudes. We should probably try to live like them in some respects, right? We try to emulate them. But when you see the Beatitudes, the blessedness seems to change. What we see in the Beatitudes are, is a profile of a hero, someone that we aspire to be like. But it's a strange hero. This hero is poor in spirit. This hero is mourning, meek, hungry, and thirsting. Because you come to realize that at the foot of the cross, before these Beatitudes, which, des which describe the Christian, this describes you and me. They describe ultimately Jesus. Why can you and I live lives of great contentment and be rich as kings? Because he became poor in spirit. Spiritually and utterly poor. Why are you and I filled and refreshed? Because on the cross, Jesus paid our debt. And he was hungry and thirsty for us as upon the cross he cried, I thirst. So the point on this All Saints Sundays, dear friends, is let us aim for righteousness and we'll get blessedness. And all our relationships are transformed. All our lives are transformed. All the direction of our lives is transformed. It will change you when you see this good news. 
But if you follow the narratives of our culture, which is the exact same narratives of Lyon, France in 180 AD, if you aim for blessedness, you will get neither blessedness or righteousness. So may I suggest to you, where are you this All Saints Sunday? Are you among those like the faithful in Lyon at the time that are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness which only can be found in Jesus Christ? Or are you chasing after the narratives of blessedness which are a lie? I don't know if you know, but it's an election year. <laughs> you know, friends, the church has an opportunity to not be fragmented. Uh, we're, 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 there's going to be those of us who disagree politically. You're welcome here. This is a good place to be because we're going to keep it on the, on, the, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to encourage you to get out and vote. But let us keep the same thing, the main thing, the main thing. Because our hope is in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, no matter who gets elected on Tuesday. But you need to vote. Get informed and vote. You see, this narratives that were in Lyon, the gospel spread like wildfire. And it can spread like wildfire here if God's church will repent, believe, follow, make disciples who make disciples and love our community and vote. You know, I think the important thing in this individualistic society and culture like Irenaeus's day, the church was incredibly resilient. It didn't fall off the face of the planet, and it won't until Jesus returns. Every time the church throughout history has come up against something that they've never faced before, the church has broken through. And we will. Uh, you know, I might get knocked off. That's okay. There is a supernatural resilience in God's church. For Jesus was the one who said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, no matter what the undertow. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. May the Lord know be no satisfaction like that forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this day and grateful that uh, Irenaeus was such a great example for us and the people of Lyon who, after he died, continued to walk in the good news of Jesus Christ and continued in the, the revival, the reformation, whatever title you want to give it. Just the gospel grew in the population faster than the numbers of that city was growing. May that happen here because we, as your people in Christ Church, are so faithful in this way that we would avail ourselves to such transformation, to reprioritize our lives and walk in the power of the Spirit in this way, so that, Lord, may all who become behind us find us faithful, like Irenaeus and the good people of Lyon, France. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.